I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. Vatican scandals are still in the news, with Pope Benedict's 46-year-old butler being charged over the leaking of sensitive papal documents to the media, the president of the Vatican Bank being dismissed last week, and protesters having shouted shame on you at the Pope during Sunday's Angelus. On Wednesday, during his weekly address in St Peter's Square, Benedict responded by saying, Suggestions have multiplied, amplified by some media, which are totally gratuitous and which have gone well beyond beyond the facts. Elsewhere, at the Presbyterian General Assembly in Belfast, the new moderator Dr Roy Patton was installed. Dr Patton, who was interviewed on the God slot after his election, encouraged the church to speak out and make its voice heard in a world which he described as often opposed to Christian values and lifestyle. A recent position paper published by the Royal College of Psychiatrists in London states in one of its recommendations that a tactful and sensitive exploration of patients' religious beliefs and spirituality should routinely be considered and will sometimes be an essential component of clinical assessment. This and other recommendations were questioned by Paul O'Donoghue, a clinical psychologist and a founder member of the Irish Skeptics Society, and he joins us now. Paul, can you elaborate a little bit on that position paper, what was it setting out to do? Well, essentially there's been debate uh, going on for some time um, within the psychiatry community um, as to whether people should deal with spiritual issues um, in the consulting room. And what really concerned me was the idea that uh, people's religious or spiritual positions uh, should routinely be questioned. Um, I think it's something that rarely comes in, in my experience, to the consulting room. Would you not accept, though, that in this country, we may say the country is becoming more secular, but the recent census, for example, said that 80% Mm -hmm. still consider religion to have some part in their lives? There's no denying that. There's been a major uh, concern, for example, this is just to illustrate some of the tensions that can occur between mainstream psychology and psychiatry, a form of treatment that's been carried out uh, in the UK and in the US over the last year or two um, has been done with people who uh, have uh, issues around homosexuality and it's referred to as conversion therapy or reparative therapy. And uh, essentially the presumption on, on the part of the therapist in that situation is that homosexuality is either due to some form of illness or aberration um, and that it's something that can be changed. Um, And a lot of the evangelical Christian groups have bought into this. Now, the majority of the professional organisations are of the view that homosexuality is just part of normal sexuality. There isn't anything you can do about that. It's, it's how you're made. And so uh, this form of therapy can be detrimental um, to the person. Um, so that's an area, I think, in which the, the tension or the, the, the dispute has arisen, if you like, between a view that's coming from a scientific perspective and a view that's coming from a religious uh, or belief perspective. The thing about uh, religion is that um, it's based on dogma and it's based on faith. Uh, in science, questioning and debate and argument are encouraged actively because that's how things evolve and how things change. Um, in 19, up to 1973, for example, just relating back again to the homosexuality issue, uh, homosexuality was contained in the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, and it was in there as a condition that, had, that could be treated. It was only in 1973 that that was removed. Um, I think that in other areas, uh, notions like that aren't so easily abandoned. 
from the historical point of view, I suppose the two obvious ones are uh, the conflict between uh, Darwin and Wallace's uh, theory of evolution in opposition to, say, the description of how uh, we were created in Genesis. They're radically different and they're opposed, but the evidence is with the science. Um, and the Catholic Church, for example, has come in line with that. Um, I think their argument is uh, now along the lines that evolution is accepted, but at some point in the process, God put a soul into what became man, if you like. Um, and the other uh, dispute arose, uh, I think, with uh, Copernicus and Galileo, I mentioned, um, when uh, it was realised that the sun was the centre of the solar system and not the earth, and that everything didn't revolve uh, around mankind. My prediction would be that the next major area uh, that's going to cause that type of upheaval and uh, where there's going to be a lot of tension uh, is in our evolving understanding um, of how consciousness evolves. Um, consciousness is now taught to be uh, an emergent property of our physiology. In other words, that the brain is the substrate and consciousness emerges from that. Um, and it all, there are also implications from neuroscience now around the whole idea of free will. One thing you mentioned there is the human being being special. You know, there's different types of meaning to that. I mean, I don't consider we're special at all. We're just another animal that's living on the planet. We have very different faculties and very different capacities, um, but we're different. We're not special. Uh, when you talk about special in the other sense um, of being special within the family, I think it's really important within families that uh, we develop um, you know, strength of character, self-esteem, self-confidence, and all of that's hugely important. And psychology has a lot to say about um, how those kinds of... Uh, traits or capacities, if you like, can be developed uh, within families by, by effective parenting. And we're special in that way, but I don't think we're special in relation to the rest of the earth or the organisms on the earth. This doesn't really emerge uh, in, in discussion with clients. Um, in my experience, it emerges in conversations like this or conversations in the pub, uh, which are fun to have. Um, but in general, as I said, when people come, it's like going to the doctor or the dentist they come with a particular issue that they want to resolve and if the issue happens to be an existential spiritual type issue it's not my area or, one I mean, just gets the impression that. though that a relationship with a psychiatrist is more of a holistic relationship that these kind of things would come into it i, I think uh, at most you you end up acknowledging these things and uh, and granting it a a dignity and a respect but I don't think it's appropriate to get into nitty-gritty discussions on it. Therapy is conducted on the basis of scientific evidence and evidence-based uh, theory and practice. Well, the, um, the final recommendation here in this paper yeah. from the Royal College of Psychiatrists, religion and spirituality and their relationship to the diagnosis, etiology and treatment of psychiatric disorders should be considered as essential components of both psychiatric training and continuing professional development. Do you disagree with that then? Um, I, I think that they can be referenced in training. I've never come across it in training, and I suspect most psychiatrists haven't either. So if it's not essential, why is it not part and parcel of current training? And I don't think it is. Um, and I think it's not because uh, it's not particularly relevant to the practice of psychiatry or psychology. If you have in, in uh, certain types of schizophrenia a person believing that they're in direct contact with God or that, they're, or that they are God... Um, well, then that's something that you've got to pay attention to, but it's generally seen as a florid hallucination. That's not seen as a reality. Um, and I don't disrespect anybody. I just think that science and medicine are evidence-based, and whereas spirituality and uh, religion are supernatural. We don't deal with that. We deal with the natural world, not the supernatural world.
Okay, one final one. You're sure. also a member of the Irish Skeptics yes. Organisation. Tell us a bit about that. Um, myself and my wife and two friends founded the Irish Skeptics Society um, almost 10 years ago now. Uh, the Irish Skeptics Society was set up to promote science and critical thinking. Skeptics are certainly not cynical. They're incredibly positive people who happen to have a, a serious uh, interest in and fascination with uh, science and with the whole development uh, that, that occurs from science and medicine. Um, but we decided to stick with the the skeptics term and we spell it with a k as well because there's actually a skeptics movement across the world you have to doubt um in order to inquire i suppose that's your motivation to inquire is your doubt but uh yeah we've had great fun uh, along the way um and lots of debates and um yeah it, it's it's a great hobby paul o'donoghue thank you for joining us in studio Cork's Penny Dinners, that city's oldest charity, began life in 1845 as a soup kitchen founded by the Quakers. And in these days of financial austerity, committee member Florence Harrison finds that its services were never more needed. She tells us about the vital work carried out by the charity. In order for it not to be strictly charity, uh, the Quakers would charge a penny and you would get a half pint of homemade soup and a lo- half a loaf of bread for a penny. There's a slightly interesting point, is that Quakers are very innovative. There was a large Quaker family ran a shipbuilding business on the quay, and the original penny dinners would have been Adelaide Street, so the court people would know it's just off the quay. And they ran large pipes, so all the steam that was used in the boilers for the shipbuilding went down these pipes. Large vats with soup were put on the two pipes. They cooked it and they kept it hot and it was free of charge. So I always thought that was very innovative. Our ethos says that we feed anyone in need with no questions asked. So if you rolled up, hopefully not in a Rolls Royce with a chauffeur, but... Uh, anyone who comes in and says, I would like a meal, they are welcome. Just generally, I would say there's been a huge change in the last year, year and a half. Previous to that, we fed mainly men, and mainly they would have been in the 30 to the 60 age bracket. Now we're feeding more and more families, uh, children, uh, people who been self-employed and suddenly found out when their business has failed that they wouldn't receive any social welfare. You make a contribution, you're not asked, and if you don't pay anything, there's no, that's fine. You give what you can. The whole thing is run by volunteers. Without volunteers, we couldn't function. Again, we depend totally on donations from the people of Cork, and I must say, I am just overcome with the generosity. People knock at our door or send in the post and you can tell that this hurts they're giving money that they've gone without something else in order to give us this money and I feel if it's five euros or five hundred it doesn't matter it's a privilege and an honor to be given that money and we make sure that every single cent is stretched to two cents you know there are so many people in need and food is a very, very basic, very important need. And I have a very strong feeling that you come to Penny Dinners 50% for the food, but 50% for the welcome, 
and the acceptance because if you've either lost your job or if you're homeless you also lose a lot of your self-respect and people don't generally reach out to the homeless so when they come here they're completely accepted we're feeding 900 a week our ethos is a Quaker ethos so even though we're now a multi-denominational committee it still would have a lot of Quaker um, the atmosphere and the and our, our beliefs and we would also get some support from Dublin Quakers or U, uh, UK Quakers there's an affection for court penny dinners that kind of trans transcends generations and also uh, where it is because Cork is not the largest city in the world it's basically a very generous religion that allows all everybody to have their their theory is that there are various routes to God my route may not be yours but it doesn't make yours any the less um, important Florence Harrison of Cork's Penny Dinners and that report was compiled by Moraith Mead Last week we heard how much or indeed how little Irish people know about the apparitions at Fatima in 1817 and the secrets imparted by the Virgin Mary to the three seers, Lucia, Francisco and Jacinta. Some months ago, Father Andrew Apostoli, a Franciscan friar of the Renewal, a regular broadcaster on EWTN and the author of Fatima for Today and Sister Angela, the vice postulator for the causes of Jacinta and Francisco and a general practitioner in medicine, visited Dublin to publicise the story of the events in the Portuguese city. Godslot producer Jerry McCardle met them and began with Sister Angela explaining the relevance of Fatima for Today. Somehow, uh, this 20th century need, and the 21st century need more what Our Lady came to say in Fatima than probably other centuries. Even if those who were healed in the body, they eventually will die. The problem is the eternal death of our soul. That's the great problem that bothers, uh, that preoccupies the Mother of God in Fatima. I'll, I'll come back to that. Father Apostoli, the, the secrets of Fatima, or the, the so-called secrets of Fatima, they've, they've all been revealed now. But um, the one that journalists latch on to is the third secret of Fatima. Could you talk to me about that? Well, I believe the whole secret has been revealed. You see, unfortunately, a hysteria kind of grew up around the message when it was not revealed in 1960. And the reason it wasn't revealed, because Pope John XXIII looked at it a couple of months before 1960, he was the Pope at the time, and he must have said, oh, who's this Pope who gets shot? You know, he had probably no idea, and he said, now's not the time. It wasn't until Pope John Paul II was shot on May 13, 1981, the Feast of Our Lady of Fatima, that while he was at the Jumeli Hospital, not even the first time, he came back to the Vatican, he got sick again, they sent him back. It was the second time he called for the uh, third secret. He wanted to read it, and soon as he read it, you know, obviously it was obvious to him who that Pope that got shot was. And of course, in the third secret, the Pope dies. And he realized, I should have died, but it was the Blessed Mother who prevented me from dying. Cardinal Ratzinger, when he was uh, issuing that third secret, making it public, um, he, uh, he said a lot of people are going to be disappointed. 
And, it, and of course, a lot of people keep saying the third secret has not been revealed. It's been revealed. There's no reason why they would hold back from that. Okay, I'm going to ask you specifically a question, Sister Angela, because A, you're a woman, and B, you're a doctor, uh, apart from your, your religious vocation. I have a lot of difficulties with Marian apparitions. You know, I've been honest with you right from the start about that. One of the things I have a real difficulty with is the first secret, that here you have a seven-year-old child, Jacinta, and she's shown this vision that a child would not be allowed to watch in a cinema of souls popping up, as Mother Angelica describes it, like popcorn out of the flames. And then afterwards, she feels so strongly about this that she has to tie a cord around her waist and not a cord around her naked flesh. We're talking about a seven-year-old child here. I mean, does that not smack of child abuse in some way to you? No, not at all. Not at all. Okay, let me put this. Our Lady was willing those three children to play a very special role in the history of redemption of humanity. These little children had no idea what sin was about. The most difficult and tough sins they could think about at that age was not go to Sunday Mass and said some bad words, you know, like uh, bad words. But isn't that part of childhood? Isn't that what, what childhood should be? Yes, exactly. So they were normal kids. Our Lady somehow wanted them to understand the mystery of God's love and the mystery... Uh, for the suffering of the those who are not in the history of lo- God's love, so those who run away from God, she could tell them clearly uh, there is hell, just words. But because they somehow saw the consequences, the possibility of that, they felt much more stronger and with a longing desire to save souls. Were they scared in the end? No, they were not. Otherwise, they would be psychologically closing themselves and they were open to love. They were, there was a moment of frightening where Lucia said a, a very, uh, like, a, ah, but they were looking to Our Lady. And then she said some words, because the vision of hell, you cannot close the vision of hell. Again, isolated. You have to put in the, um, all together with the words that Our Lady said afterwards, you saw hell. And listen to this, where the souls of poor sinners go. Hell is a possibility, and our church teaches that. It is a dogma. It is a state of those who all their lives reject God, consciously, right? Okay? And that makes me, you know, why why can I truly love God? Because I'm free. I can choose to love him. That's why there is heaven, that's why there is hell, purgatory, wherever the church is teaching, because I am free. And, and I know what you're saying is Orthodox Catholic teaching. I accept that totally. But a lot of people have difficulty with the idea of the loving, kind Jesus who becomes offended by the fact that his human creatures behave like human beings. And so offended is he that he has to roast them for all eternity. You know, people have difficulty with that. Read my book. I spend a lot of time on this point. See, remember, the ultimate reason Our Lady came was to save souls from hell. That is ultimately, she wants to bring them all to heaven. See, even more than peace on earth is eternal salvation because to spend eternity in hell is just terrible. But I think she allowed the children to see it for two reasons. Number one is to 
make people aware this is real. The children saw that and told us about it so that we would make sure we don't go there. In fact, little Jacinta used to say, I wish everybody would have seen the vision of hell, then nobody would ever go there. See, that's the first thing. And the second thing is, what that vision did, and you are correct, they, they were little children, and they certainly, there's the photograph taken after they saw that, that uh, those three, the three secrets all in one day, you know, that, um, the, the, you could see they were, they were shaken. But it made them extremely zealous. And that's, I think, something that we have to remember. You know, we don't want anyone to be lost. That's what our, our mother came to ask for. Pray that no one would ever go there. I don't think God sends anybody there. People will send themselves. Because, see, what we tend to forget is that God is infinite. God is infinite beauty, infinite goodness and love. If you have the least, the least un, uh, uh, um, lack of love in your heart, you will not want to be near him. Absolutely, you cannot be near him. You will run as far away as possible. And as someone once said, if there were no purgatory, for example, we'd have to create it. Okay, let's, let's, let's accept what you say there. But the idea of a seven-year-old child feeling that she has to wear a knotted cord around her body, her naked body, to do penance? Well, that was, well that, was, but th that was something they chose to do. They wanted to offer a little sacrifice. But they, they children weren't committed. can't make those choices, Father. Huh? Children can't make those well, the, choices. Well, okay, you are, you, in one thing, you, you have a good point here, because the Blessed Mother told her, don't wear it at night. Oh. But God, the Father, said, don't wear it at night. He didn't want that. But during the day, they offered it as one of their little sacrifices. That's all. You know? What was behind that rope? A great love towards Jesus and towards the poor sinners. As they could see, they had, they had no other things to offer. Look, they offer also the meals for the poor. They also offer, for example, to obey the parents more times. And they also found a rope that they put on the waist. And Father enlightened that. And very, that is very clear. They, Our Lady said, God is pleased. God is happy with your sacrifices, but he does not want you to sleep with a rope. See, these children made God happy. If you see the rope, just the rope, it looks like masochism. And we are not talking about masochism. We are talking about children who love. Let me just put this to Dr. Angela rather than Sister yes. Angela. If a seven-year-old child came to you and told you she'd seen a vision of hell and that because she wanted to make reparation, she was going to wear a knotted rope around her waist, but God had told her, hey, don't wear it at night, you would have serious worries about that child, wouldn't you? Um, when I was seven, I myself wore a rope. And I am, I think, intelligent, wise, because I want to imitate the little children. My mother was not very worried. She tried to maybe put me, you know, in the word, in the word of love. Um, if I see a child wearing, making sacrifices, give up candies, giving up TV, giving up things for the love of God, I just would be concerned, as, as Our Lady was, if their healths were being... Uh, somehow in danger. If the health health was in danger, then stop, don't do it. God does not want that. If it's not, I would be very admiring that child. It is an example for me.
Sister Angela talking to Jerry McArdle and Father Andrew Apostoli's book Fatima for Today is published by Ignatius Press. If you'd like to learn more and ask further questions about Fatima, you can visit the Call to Fatima stand number 39 at the Eucharistic Congress. If you have any comments, our phone number is 01208 The email address is godslot at rte.ie and the postal address, the Godslot, RTE Radio 1, Dublin 4. Next week, in our penultimate programme of this series, we have something very special. Four young people, a Catholic, a Jew, a Hare Krishna and an agnostic, with ages ranging from 19 to 23, discuss God, religion, good and evil, sexual morality and the afterlife in what could prove to be the most fascinating debate yet hosted by the Godslot. That's next Friday at the same time. August Gudishin, Rat Jarev. Because I gotta have faith. Oh,